Matthew chapter 26 this morning. I want to begin reading in verse number 36. Matthew chapter 26, verse number 36. The Bible says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto His disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And then saith He unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. I want you to notice the first phrase of verse 39. It says, And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And this is again mimicked in verse 42. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup, may not pass from me except I drink it. Thy will be done. I want to remind you of the phrase a little farther. And this morning as we take a peek into the life of Jesus and we look into Gethsemane, I want you to see that there was something distinctly different about Jesus that set Him apart from His disciples. And it it sets Him apart for many of us in this room. And it's the fact that Jesus went a little farther. Back in 2010, I think it was, was the first time I ever had the opportunity to go to Israel. I'll have the opportunity to go back this May with a college group that we're hosting. And we'll probably do that every two years until Jesus comes. But I remember the first time being in Israel, when I came back, people asked me, they said, what was like the greatest sights that you saw? And that was really a difficult question. I felt like for 12 or 13 days, I was just drinking from a fire hydrant. There were so many things that I saw, I felt like I couldn't take it in. I'll never forget the first time I saw the Sea of Galilee. The bus parked at the base of a place that was called the Arbel Cliffs. And what we were going to do is we were going to walk up some, some type of a mountain. Now, when I talk about a mountain, I'm not talking about Mount Everest, but it was an elevated place. And the tour guide told us, he said, listen, when you get to the top of this cliff, you're going to see the Sea of Galilee, and it's absolutely spectacular. Uh, I still remember we were making our hike up that way. And uh, at that time, Mrs. Rosenau, now it's Mrs. Townsend, but Mrs. Rosenau, my English teacher in college, was on that tour group and she was probably 80-some years old. And I remember watching her hoof it up the Arbel Cliff with tenacity. She was going after it. And I said, I'm not letting an 80-year-old woman beat me to the top of this place. And I'll never forget standing at the Arbel Cliff and I looked out and lo, there was the Sea of Galilee. It's about 14 miles this way, 7 miles this way. And I stood there and saw it for the first time in my life and I said, that's where the disciples almost drowned twice. I said to myself, that's where Peter saw the Lord and he came to the shore. And it was stunning to see it. I mean, how how... how can you top that? But then we went to other places, like we went to En Gedi. Uh, whenever you go to En Gedi, it's very easy to understand how David could hide from Saul. 
You're walking through a desert-like place. You see holes in the sides of these hills. I'll never forget, we had a waterfall that we went to. And uh, by the way, it's a waterfall that you cannot access anymore because there were some uh, different things that have changed the landscape. I learned that on my last trip to Israel. But I'll never forget, we were at a beautiful waterfall and it had a pool at the bottom. And I will never forget Dr. Surrett, my homiletics teacher. He was wearing blue jeans and a polo shirt. And we are talking one second and the next second I watched him dive off right into that pool of water and swim like a, like a 14-year-old kid. I remember looking at him. I said, Brother Surrett, what are you doing? He said, listen, I figure I'll never get to see this again. And if David probably swam here, I certainly want to too. <laughs> you see, professors are human beings. I want you to know. I still remember standing on the Temple Mount. And when you look across the way you see the, the Mount of Olives. It's the largest Jewish graveyard in the world. And you stand on the, on the Temple Mount, you look across the valley, you see the Mount of Olives, you see these white sepulchers, and they just basically pave the mountainside. I thought to when Jesus was talking to the religious crowd and He said, Ye whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones... Jesus was giving them an object lesson. Everyone knew it was so obvious. Jesus said, you are just like what's on that mountainside. There was no mistaking it. It was plain. Later, we would go over to the Mount of Olives. I remember we were standing at the top and the tour guide was teaching us some things about the Mount of Olives. And I noticed on these raised white sepulchers that there were rocks that were on top of those. And I looked at Aryeh, our guide. I said, what are those here for? Is somebody vandalizing the place? He said, oh no, not at all. He said, in America, when you set flowers down at a grave, you do that as a matter of respect. And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, here they take stones and they set those stones on the sepulchers. So he said, it's not vandalism at all or disrespect. He says, as a matter of fact, it's honor. It's remembering your loved ones. And of course we saw the empty tomb and you know that was it was it was all just a tremendous experience but the first time I went to Israel without a doubt and it sort of hit me differently I didn't expect this but the place that hit me the most was Gethsemane Gethsemane was number 1 when I saw Jerusalem for the first time I just broke down weeping when I said the most significant events known to mankind happened right there. But number one was Gethsemane. We went to the bottom of the Mount of Olives and there we went into a a grove of olive trees. The guide was very quick to tell us these were not the original trees when Jesus was here. However, it was a very similar setting. And I still remember seeing that grove of olive trees. The olive tree is a beautiful tree. It looks somewhat gnarled on the outside. But when you look at the grain of that wood, anything that's made with olive wood, it has a unique grain to it. It's beautiful. The leaves are gold or the leaves are green on one side, silver on the back. It's, we walked into this grove of trees, and after a brief word about Gethsemane, the guide said, "Listen, if you'd like to take just a few moments and have some introspection, he said, "We'll leave you alone." And I remember walking around that place, and I finally found an olive tree that I felt like had my name on it, and I just knelt there, and I began to think about how so often I'm like the disciples. 
instead of Jesus. I'm sleeping when I ought to be praying. And it was a very, very convicting time for me at Gethsemane. And the passage that we've just read tells us about Jesus and His disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And young people, I want to tell you something. Jesus was willing to go a little farther and enter into that intimate relationship with His heavenly Father and so should we. Do you know that because you're a Bible college student doesn't mean you're deep? You say, that sounds pretty condescending. Well, you know, just because I'm an evangelist by default doesn't mean I'm deep. I'm sure there are a lot of preachers who are performers. I'm sure there are a lot of people that they just simply are a hollow shell. But I'm telling you, God wants us to have depth and intimacy with Him and you can have it if you're willing to find Gethsemane. This morning, I want to help you find Gethsemane, and I'm going to save you a full, uh, a full fare of a plane ticket. You won't even have to sit at your computer and go to Google Earth and find... Isn't it amazing what you can find just by going to a computer, typing in an address, and it gives you a satellite image. But this morning in the chapel service, I want to help you find Gethsemane through the eyes of Scripture. And I want to ask you, are you willing yourself to go a little farther to have that intimacy with God? If you're going to find Gethsemane this morning, the first thing you have to mark is if, number one, it's a place of solitude. Gethsemane is a place of solitude. Verse 36, Then cometh Jesus with him unto a place called Gethsemane, and he said unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. You know, that word yonder is a word that resonates with me. I've had some people, they talk about how hard the Bible is to understand. And I I know that it has propitiation. I wasn't raised with that word myself in public school. But, you know, to some of the critics, I say to them, you know, it's funny you say that because there's some words in there that I understand really well, and yonder is one of them. Being raised in my mountain roots, you use the word yonder over there. Listen, that's like using the conjunction and. You just use it all the time. You know, and here Jesus goes over yonder. He says, let's go over there. Let's go to a place. You sit here. I'm going to go Yonder, I'm going to find a place of separation and I'm going to pray. And then we find in the following verse, he takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him and he separates himself from all the disciples. You may not ever be able to fly and see Gethsemane with your own two eyes, but listen to me, you can experience Gethsemane if you're willing to find a place of solitude. Before you came to school, did you have a practice of where you just got alone with the Lord and you talked with Him? Oh, I know college life is busy and I've got news for you. It doesn't stop there. 
You can ask our graduates. They'll tell you, oh, you're just busy the rest of your life in serving the Lord. I don't care whether you're in a college setting or you're in ministry or you're just a Christian working the grind 60 hours a week and taking care of all of your obligations. We always have something pressing on our time. But you can never, you can never have that intimacy with God that He desires unless you're willing to go a little farther and find a place of solitude. You know, there's sometimes when I talk to my wife, I don't want anybody else around. Because I want to open my heart to her and I want to tell her things that nobody else needs to hear. There'd be times when our kids were smaller. It's amazing to me. So many single people in here that have no children. Just wait until you have children. The best of life's ahead. You talk about free entertainment, hospital visits. It's, listen, it's all wrapped up in children. But I never, I, I, it always amazed me. My wife and I could be sitting in the living room talking to each other and our three kids, you know, screaming and hollering and having fun. You know, they're, they're doing their thing and we're talking to each other and I think to myself, you know, this is a great time since they're occupied. I, I want to talk to her about a sensitive issue. And I would start talking about that sensitive issue and all of a sudden they got quiet. And I would look at them and I would be like, what's wrong? They said nothing. <laughs> I, I said, but you, you guys were just doing this a few minutes ago and now you're quiet. Just keep... No, we just want to be quiet. <laughs> Why do you want to be quiet? We want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> you know, not only do parents have that built-in radar of, uh, boy, my children are doing something evil. I'm going to find them right now. But children have a radar. When when their parents start talking about something good and juicy, it just all drops off. doesn't matter who's winning. It doesn't matter. None of that. We're going to stop everything and listen. Well, I realized at that point there was no hope. And so I said, well, that's it. I said, we're going to go to the bedroom. I want to go talk to your mom. And I want a place of privacy. That's where we would go. And so I went into the bedroom. I went to the far side of the bedroom and something told me, you better look at that door. And I looked over at the door and I saw three shadow footprints standing by the door. And so I just gracefully moved through the carpet and yanked the door open and there are all three of them just like that. And you know, I finally said to them, I said, that's it, go outside. And they were like, how long? And I'm like, count to a million by ones. <laughs> and when you do that, then you can, no, but dad, really, how long? Uh, till I say, well, when are you going to say, I don't know, but get outside and do it now. <laughs> and they did. You know, there's times you want privacy. There's times here at the college that dating couples want privacy. And uh, that's when they sit down in the lower level. They sit down at those longer tables. They don't want the crowd around them. They sit down there, and that's why it's great when you can just go sit with them. Nothing like a faculty (laughs) member sitting with you as a dating couple. I have been at times where people just literally went, (laughs) when that happened. And to be honest, I can't fault them because I know they're trying to find some isolation. You know what the shame is? There may be some of you 
that are more intentional about your isolation with your potential other than you are your isolation with God. There's some of us in this room, we want to have our private time texting or calling or speaking with whoever, but it seems like we're not very interested in having a place of solitude with God. Now I want to ask you again this morning, do you have a practice of where you spend time in solitude with God in prayer? You'll never be able to find Gethsemane until you find a place of solitude where you have to intentionally separate yourself. You know, I've talked to students through the years and they get a little frustrated. You know, going from an only child to communal life, that was different for me. Having your own bedroom and not having to share and then all of a sudden you're in a dorm with 28 guys. That's different. And sometimes students will say, well, you know what, I just, can't, I just cannot find time. I can tell you this, you can find time. You can make it. Right after COVID, I was talking to a man in a church and he was telling me about how he had lost his job because of how things trans, transpired in his company. And he, the job that he had, it was a gravy job. It was like five minutes away from his house and the pay was great. And he was telling me that his new job is like a 45-minute drive away and the pay is for less. And he's just had to learn to, to deal with that. But he was sharing with me that story. He said, the reason I tell you is he said, when I first got that job 45 minutes away, he said, I just gripe and complain the whole time. He said, I knew that wasn't right, but that was just in my spirit. And he said, but eventually God got a hold of my heart. And he said, you know what I did? He said, instead of spending that 45 minutes of solitude in that car, driving there with a heart filled with griping, he said, I made up my mind that I was going to pray. And he said, Brother Beal, he said, that has transformed my life. You don't have to go to Israel to find Gethsemane. Listen to me, if you'll find a place of solitude and you separate yourself from everybody else, listen, you're well on your way to Gethsemane and to experiencing that intimacy that Jesus had. Are you willing to go a little farther? If you're going to find Gethsemane, number one, it's a place of solitude. Number two, it's a place of sorrow. You don't have to go very long in the passage. Verse 37, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. The events that are to transpire in Gethsemane are filled with sorrow. Now listen, I enjoy happiness. I like to talk about joy. But I realize that life is filled with mountains and valleys, and you better remember that too. There's some of you that live great on the mountains and you go to despair in the valleys and you're up and you're down and you're up and you're down. But there will be mountaintops and there will be valleys. But can I tell you, I'm glad that in the time of sorrow, I can isolate myself and I can talk to God. You know, when there's a heaviness that comes into your soul, 
So often that's the time that we seek to isolate ourselves from everyone, including God. You ever let something well up in you? I know. You say, I'm 20 years old. I've never lost a child or I've never had this happen of a, of a great sort in my life. But I don't care whether you're 19 or whether you're 90. Listen to me. We all experience our sorrows and we all sometimes give in to the temptation of isolating ourselves from God when the truth is we ought to retreat in Him. And this whole year is going to be filled with a testing ground for all of us. Are you going to pull back from everyone or are you going to flee to God? The Bible says that he was sorrowful and he was very heavy. You ever had a heaviness in your soul that was like very heavy? Several years ago there was a man in town on several rental properties. He called me. He said, Alton, he said, I've got a piano here. And this rental property that needs to be moved, he said, the renters left it. And he said, it's awful. He said, I need somebody to move it out. He said, I'll pay you $40 to move it. Well, I got to thinking to myself and I thought, you know, this is a college campus filled with, you know, strapping young men. And I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just, I'll put out the word and I'll get four students, four guys to go over and help me. I'll I'll say, you want to make 10 bucks for five minutes of work? And they'll all be like, yeah, I'd like to do that. And so I put out the word, and lo and behold, I had four guys. They came and met me in front of the commons. I drove my pickup truck over there. They all hopped in the back. We made the two-minute drive around the block. We got to the place, the rental property, and we went in, and sure enough, it was a piano, and it was made in like 1638, and it was built with lead. And to top it off, all all the wheels were broken on the bottom. This guy's getting a bargain now, you know. I'm like, $40, we need a crane is what we need. (laughs) And so I watched those young men. They struggled, but they maneuvered it without destroying the thing and destroying the property. And they got it out to the porch, and now was the pivotal part to get it on the back of my pickup. I knew because of the weight of that piano, I thought to myself, you know, uh, we're going to have to be careful on this. I said, guys, you can't just rest the full weight of that piano on the tailgate because I'm afraid it's going to snap the straps. I said, you're going to have to make that step across, and you're going to have to make sure that that thing lands in the actual bed of the truck. And I thought we were all on the same page with it. And I, you know, and I said, so you know, we're going to have to be a little careful with this. So I said, let's move it. Well, you know, it was really interesting. So now I find myself and one of the weaker young men on one side of the piano and the three hulks over on the other side. Now, that really wasn't my intention, but you know, I made a mistake, Brother Crow. I let my pride get the best of me, and I thought, you know what? Okay, if that's what you want to do. And so I told them. I said, all right. I said, on three. I said, I'm going to lift it. I said, I'll step over, and we'll get this thing, and then you can, you just push push it my way when we tell you to. And so on three, we lifted it, and I'm going to tell you what, as we started lifting, my back said to my brain, what are you doing? And it was one of those moments in which I I, I was very close to the edge. But I knew that if I dropped it, it would be bad for me. It'd be bad. And I mean, it was one of those things where it was pure adrenaline and stubbornness. And in two seconds seemed like an eternity. And finally, I set it down. 
And I paid for it afterwards. I still remember the strain. I wasn't laying in the floor hurting all the time, but my back let me know it was there. You ever been worked out physically and boy, you feel it? And I mean, just to the point where sometimes it makes you feel miserable. I'd take that a thousand times over rather than being sorrowful and very heavy in my soul. Have you ever been emotionally spent? You ever been brought to a place where your, your sorrow just seems so overwhelming? Jesus knows about that sorrow. As a matter of fact, He was acquainted with sorrow and grief. Why? He chose, he chose that because He was going to die for you and He was going to die for me. But at this glimpse in Gethsemane, we don't find Jesus on the mountaintop. We find Jesus in the valley. And it is so intense that another passage tells us that He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. You'll have some people, they'll tell you the Christian life never has sorrow. That person's a liar. And usually the same people that say that are the ones that say you're going to prosper. And you know what? You're going to, if you sow a seed of faith, you're going to have all kinds of money. You're going to have all kinds of prosperity. Let me tell you, if those men were right, then that means that every disciple was a failure. And on top of that, an even more blasphemous reason is if they say that that's the picture of success, then Jesus must have failed greatly because He had to go through sorrow. If you're here this morning and you don't find a place of solitude, I'm going to tell you what, you probably won't find a place of sorrow in your life or you probably won't during the time of sorrow in your life retreat to Him. You'll just do your own thing and you'll hit your head on every tree branch in life when you ought to stop what you're doing, find time, get alone with God and pour out your sorrow to Him. Sometimes a student experiences the death of a loved one and they have to go home during a semester. Sometimes a major disappointment comes into your life. Listen to me. Go to Gethsemane and find a place of retreat. It's a place of solitude. It's a place of sorrow. But the last thing that I want to tell you is that Gethsemane is a place of submission. In verse 39, and he went a little farther and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Here we find such a declaration. It's hard to explain, I'll be honest. One thing I do know for sure, verse 39 is not Jesus trying to weasel out of going to Calvary. Jesus went willingly. He went knowingly. And in the following verse, in verse 42, He said, listen, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. He said, if that's what I have to do, that's what I have to do. But why do we see this expression in the Scripture? Somehow, some way, I do think that it's reflective. Listen, Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. I have no problem stating that.
He experienced thirst. He experienced pain. Are those things that we like? Do you like that humanly speaking? I don't know of a one of you that gets up every morning and says, Boy, I hope I have a toothache today. I don't think anybody's saying, I hope I tear an ACL tonight in the league game. I think that'd be great. I like pain. Listen to me. If you like pain, you ought to be put in a straight jacket with padded, padded walls in a room. You know, but from the human aspect, do you realize what's ahead for Jesus? Listen to me. There is a threshold of pain that man has never experienced before that Jesus is about to experience. Not only the physical pain, but the emotional pain as Jesus hangs on the cross. He is naked and emaciated. Listen to me, young people. You see these these are portraits of the cross and it's really sanitized as to what it actually looked like. And here Jesus is hanging a mangled mess before mocking mankind and your mother's at the foot of the cross weeping until there's no more tears. You know, even as a kid, the thing that tore me up the most was seeing my mother cry. I remember one time I had a bee sting, the big bumblebee stung me on my thumb and I came in the house and I was crying and I was like, Mom. And I'm telling her all of my sorrows. And about that time, I look at mom. And mom, she starts crying. And she's like, woohoo. And you know, the strange thing happened. She started crying and I stopped. <laughs> the end of that conversation, I'm looking at her and I'm like, well, well mom, it's not really that bad. You know, the only thing that could take me off of my pain was seeing the pain of my mother. Imagine Jesus as He's hanging on the cross and His mother's weeping till there's no more tears. Do you understand what all was ahead? The truth is we don't. And we will never totally understand the magnitude of it. But Jesus submitted Himself to His Father. And I'm glad He did. As the Son of God, it's to be expected. But can I tell you, young people, that's a great lesson and example to every one of us. Because you'll not find Gethsemane without a surrendered heart. I remember I was on a missions trip to Jamaica and we were at a particular place and a man noticed that we were a church group and he asked the missionary and the group, he said, uh, hey, you mind if I pray for your group? And that man prayed the most flowery, eloquent prayer. I'll never forget it. I'm listening to this prayer. I'm like, whoa, this guy's like a, he's like a wordsmith. We were done. The man walked off and the missionary said, you know, you're not going to believe this. But he said, that man's not saved. He's just a religious person. But he, I was like, man, he sure could pray up a storm. You know, there's some of you in this room, listen, you may be talented. Man, you know all the right things to say. But listen to me, if you don't have a heart of submission, you won't go very far. Submission will take you a lot further than talent. Some of the most talented people I've ever seen come through these doors are now the least used. After about 25 years of experience in it, I've been able to see it very clearly. You show me a young person in this room that says, Not my will, but thine be done. 
And my friend, I'm going to tell you, that person there can be used greatly of God. For some of you, the reason you're not praying, you're not having a Gethsemane prayer like you ought to, it's because you're not surrendered, you're not submitted. Let me ask you a question. Do you, have you ever come to a point... My life's filled constantly with submission. Every, it seems like every week. Every week something comes my way and I have to say, All right, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. But can I tell you the most monumental moment of submission outside of the cross outside of being saved that ever took place in my life, it was when I was 15 years old. I was 15 years old. I was a carnal public high school baseball player who had one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Sundays were one way, Mondays through Saturdays seemingly were another with a little interruption on Wednesday nights when I'd go to church. I enjoyed being around the people of God, but yet in my heart, listen, there were things that I wanted to do. There were places that I wanted to go. There were things that I wanted to accomplish. Just recently, I was preaching near Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and I stood at that large stadium where they play the Little League World Series. I dreamed about that as a 12-year-old kid. I thought, man, I'd love to play here. I had all kinds of desires. I had all kinds of dreams. And I wanted to live the way that I wanted to live. But can I tell you, it was during my 15th year of life that I think God began to put the screws down on me and He began to get my attention in a variety of ways. One of those is in October of that year, my dad passing away suddenly. I'm going to tell you, when that happened... I found myself afterwards just looking at a mirror crying and saying, God, why are you doing this? I'm not like everybody else. My life's never been normal. Blah, 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 blah. But you know what that was? That was all a part of God really breaking me down. And then as a 15-year-old boy in a neighborhood Bible time crusade, there was a college student preaching one night who was a very skinny fellow with red hair and a pimply complexion. And glasses that were this big. He was probably the age of some of you fellas in this room. And he stood before us that night and he said, Don't you know your body's a temple of the Holy Ghost? Why don't you give your body a living, why don't you give yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service? And do you know it was during that sermon, as I heard it, I put it all together. I said, Lord, it's not my will that's the most important. Lord, I've got all kinds of, I've got all kinds of things that I want to do, but Lord, whatever you want with a broken and submitted heart that night, it's not that I've never battled with submission since, but I'm telling you, young people, it was at that moment as a 15-year-old that the entire future of my life was changed. And I said, all right, Lord. At that time, someone was like, well, did you know you were going to be a preacher? I didn't know if I was going to be a trash pickup person. If God would have said, be a roofer, God would have said, be a plumber. 
I didn't care. I said, Lord, whatever you want, that's what I want. And you know what? It was two years later during my senior year of high school that I heard God's call. But I'm going to tell you, so many of the blessings that I've received as a Christian, I look back to that moment as a 15-year-old boy, and I say, Lord, had I not said, not thy, my will but thine be done, my life would be a lot different. You know, I'm glad you're here. I think you're in a good place. But if you're sitting in a pew and your heart beats not, not my will but thine be done, listen to me, your way always leads to a dead end. And I may be talking to some of you, you say, Brother Beal, the truth is, I've never really come to that point of just throwing away my ambitions and throwing away my desires and saying, not my will but thine be done. And then you know what? There may be others of you. You say, preacher, I, 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 I did come to a point like that in my life. But I'm telling you right now, my life is headed in a direction. I know I'm here and I know I look good to everybody else. But it's not a heart of submission. I want my way. Listen, you better go back to your roots. You can't find Gethsemane unless you've got a heart of submission. I don't care what your grade point average is. I don't care what you can parse. Some of you are like, what's parse? If you're in Greek class, you know what that word means. You can excel in every area, but if you lack submission, you can't get to first base. Young people, as you end this week, I hope if you've not found it in a long while, you'll find Gethsemane again. It's a great place to be. It's a place of solitude. It's a place of sorrow, but it's a place of surrender. It's a place of submission. Sometimes a Blast of hot air takes me back to times where I would be riding in the back seat of our car as a kid. My dad never had new vehicles. They were always older and usually in poor repair. And the air conditioning worked great as long as the windows were rolled down and we were driving 55 miles an hour. I still remember times as a kid sitting in the back seat. And you know, we children are impatient. Five minutes to us seems like an eternity. And I remember as a kid asking the inevitable question that every child asks their parents. Suffering in that hot, humid North Carolina heat, I said, how much longer? I still remember my dad's response, and I didn't like it at the time. As a matter of fact, it just made me mad. He would just say haphazardly, oh, just, just a little farther. Two minutes would pass. How much longer? And I'd hear those despicable words a little farther. Now that I'm a parent, I understand the foolishness of my ways. But you know, that's a phrase that I used to hate. But you know, when I read about Gethsemane, I don't hate that phrase anymore. As a matter of fact, I have to be challenged every once in a while to go a little farther. Jesus went a little farther in the Garden of Gethsemane. My question is, is will you?